Hello and welcome to another episode of Adventures in .NET. I'm Sean Claybo, your host, and with me today, co-host Adam Vermonic. Hey, Adam. Nice to meet you, folks. Hey, and Mark Miller. Hey, how's it going, hey, Sean? Good. I'm nice like a, to see you guys. I'm that a professional. Awesome. I'm a professional co-host now. Just if you well, have any issues, talk to my agent. That's all I'm how saying. Do you, how do you define professional? I don't know. Let me check in a second here. <laughs> I'll get back to you by the end of the show, I think. Yeah, Webster's probably has a couple definitions there. I'm not sure which one you fit under, so. But it's check. bad news, Sean. I'm not a pro. <laughs> it's bad news. Yeah. No, it's good news for you, Mark. Every time, every time we got you on, it's good news. Okay. All right. Uh, let's welcome back to the show, Andy Watt. Hey, Andy. Hey, guys. Lovely to be back. Nice to talk to you all again. Yeah. So I think last time we had you on the show was uh, a June of last year. And uh, what did we talk about? I think we talked about containers. And, That's right. And Dev using containers. containers remotely and things like that. That was a good talk. Yeah. Yeah. I enjoyed that. It's a tool I've used quite a lot um, since actually. Very powerful. Very, very useful tool. Yeah. So if anybody's looking up the show, that was uh, episode 107. And, uh, actually, it was February of last year, so a little more, a little older yeah. than that. So. Well, time flies. <laughs> yeah. So what have you been up to since then? Uh, did you write a book? I did. I did. I wrote a book on software as a service with .NET. So I've been rather occupied since then. Yeah. So the book, uh, you know, what is it? It's software about SaaS applications? That's right, SaaS applications. So the idea of the book was to to take people through start to finish um, everything, hopefully, that you need to do to build a SaaS application and focusing on the, the Microsoft tech stack. So that was SQL Server, Entity Framework, C Sharp, Web API, and then Blazor on the front end, which Blazor was a learning experience for me as well because I hadn't done a tremendous amount with that and possibly a, a less common choice still, I think, just now. Okay. So for the, the new developers out there that might be listening, what is SaaS? And uh, you know how is that different than just a normal application they, they might be building on a day-to-day -day basis? So software as a service, uh, as the name implies, the software is provided as a service instead of as a, as a licensed product. Um, so what that means for the people that are using it, I suppose, is it's the way that you would interact with the product. It's, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be delivered as a web app but I think they all are basically. So you log in, you pay a subscription and the subscription gives you access to the software and software is a service rather than a, a thing which you own, as might have been the case, you know, when you just have to go and buy a, buy a CD and a license key and install it on your computer. If you think about the likes of Gmail, for example, that's a very common software as a service, which you don't actually have to pay for. I think you can make the case for social media being so, uh, software as a service as well. And many other things like... Um, if you do, if you use um, TurboTax for your tax or QuickBooks for your accountancy, for example, that's all software as a service. Okay, okay. I I think uh, the one I'm most familiar with that I use on a on a regular basis is all the Adobe products. It used to be something you would buy a box and install it and have a perpetual license forever and ever. Um, but now you pretty much have to pay a yearly fee for all the different applications you want to use, and then if you don't pay the fee, then you don't get to use it anymore. So. Absolutely. And there, there are pros and cons, of course, you know, because I think to a certain extent, people liked feeling like they, they owned the product and they had the product. But of course, the, the big plus side of software as a service is, is upgrades, right? You, whenever a new upgrade is pushed, everybody just, just gets the upgrade. And normally that would just be included in the monthly fee that you're paying. So you stay on the latest and greatest software as long as you're paying the, the monthly fee for it. You know, one problem that I think you don't really think about in this space uh, is that is in the area of paid plugins. So if the paid plugin for to the software as a service uh, isn't a you know kind of a, a a service, it isn't a service itself. It's something that's installed and has a perpetual license forever. That license is still only as good until your next upgrade that happens. So this has actually happened to me with a couple different software products uh, inside the Adobe stack where I've paid for a full-on perpetual license outside of it. And then Adobe gives me the free upgrade. And the and even though the license I have is for forever, it now the program I bought that forever doesn't work anymore. 
because the update's there. And their tech support is like, well, you can roll back an earlier <laughs> version of Adobe, or you can buy this other product we have, which is now going to work with it. Or more likely than not, they'll sell you a license for their new software as a service uh, plugin because everything's kind of moving in that direction. Yeah, well, you know, that would be actually better than where the situation <laughs> that I experienced. I would take that over the other, right? Over all of a sudden, now software you paid for is not working. Of course, yeah, that's a, that's a terrible outcome, no matter what the, the cause of that is. So when you're developing a, a software as a service application, what are, are some of the main concerns you have to think about as you get started and, you know, come up with requirements and design and things like that? So starting from a blank page, I think picking the tech stack is, is, is not easy at all because there's so many different ways you can go with it. And, you know, you're picking the tech stack from the database through to the front end. And the way that you expect your customers to interact with the application when, when it eventually starts to sell will, will have to influence how you, you build the tech stack. So I think that really is your first big problem to overcome. And you kind of, you know, you sort of need a crystal ball to some extent because you know what it's like when you start building a product, especially a, something which you hope is going to be large and successful and run for many years. It's kind of difficult to predict how people are going to use it. And you can't really be agile with your entire tech stack. You have to just make some decisions at the start of it and to some extent. I know there's always wiggle room and you can change things out, but to a certain extent, you're, you're locked in. So I think that's the big one. And I think that giving people a good starting point, at least to, or at least explaining how a certain tech stack will grow and will change with their user bases is, was one of the things I was really hoping to get across in the book. Just uh, pr prevent that problem with the completely blank page when you approach a, when you approach a problem. So which parts of the tech stack is something that we really need to make a decision very early because we can't change it later? And which parts are something is like a two-way door decision that we can change as we go? So, you know, in theory, if, you, if you're doing your interface-driven development properly and you're segregating everything and you're splitting into microservices, you do have a lot more control over, over these things. But like one good example is, are you writing a web app or a mobile app? And that will influence how, how everything works down the line. And, it, you know, in certain scenarios, it can be easy to say our customers will use their mobile phones in 90% of the cases, so we're writing a mobile app. But if you're not sure about that, you can find yourself tied to a certain platform because, and for all that you can, you can build both, you know, it's slightly different building mobile apps to building web apps. And the choice on the front end, mobile or web, will have some knock-on effects on your API layer and whatnot, and maybe your authentication layer. So I think I think that's a really important one to think about. Is, is what is your what are most of your users going to access your application on? And you know it used to be very easy before because it was only their desktop computers. Whereas now you've got desktops, tablets, mobile phones, watches, you know, and maybe even uh, headsets shortly as well to think about. So so that's one. And the other one is is on the other end of the tech stack. I think the database is important. And it, the, assuming you're going to have like one monolithic database, so I do talk about microservices in the in the book, which is a, a whole different um, side of things. And it's possible to switch around databases to some extent, but say, for example, you want to switch from a document database to a relational database. I have never seen that done successfully. You're, you're gutting your application if you want to do that. You're, you're fundamentally changing the shape of the underlying data. So you definitely want to get those decisions right. Yeah, I had the same. The only time I saw someone actually changing some of their database internals was in some internal project when they really had like three months to waste. So, so <laughs> they decided to change the database and BRM just for fun. But what about things like, I don't know, programming language or maybe your cloud provider or infrastructure provider? Do these decisions affect the process very early or can you change them as along the way? Uh, so the, the programming language that you want to use, I, I would argue it's, it's, it is quite interchangeable, but why would you, you know, like what you can do with the .NET Web API, you can do in Node or you can do in um, whichever other language you choose to use. It's more the, like that, that's just, you know, you set up at the start and you go with it. It's more the things that, that change, like the, the mindset that you're working in. You know, if you change the document database, you're changing your mindset about data. If you change the mobile app, you change your mindset with the data. So I would argue that that's, it's, it's very difficult to change because you're rewriting it 
but it doesn't really affect things. You know, it doesn't affect how the the users interact with the program. Uh, so now the second part of that question: changing your cloud provider. In theory, very easy. In practice, I think very difficult because the promise of cloud. You know, you use Terraform and you use Docker, and you can just ping it off to whichever cloud provider you want, and you can chop and change. But the reality is, the cloud providers they they know that and they will try and hook you in, right? So if you're writing Azure Functions, you're not changing that to AWS. And if you're using the AWS storage options, you're not changing that to Azure very easily. And I have used Terraform before, and I know that in theory you can just change, but in practice, I don't know how easy that would be either. So I think that's a, that's a very good point. I think that making your choice about your cloud provider early and making a good choice early is, is very important. And if you're hesitant about that choice, you need to make sure and not use any of the cloud-specific things, Azure Functions being the, the classic example of that. Yeah, not to mention that we may be actually like locked out from the cloud provider as it happened with some something like TikTok, right? Yeah, yeah. And it can be very, very expensive as well. That's the, that's the other thing to consider with cloud. You know, it's... It allows you to set up so quickly. It can give you this false sense of security at the start when you don't have any customers. <laughs> but then once you have a million customers hitting your, your API and your database and your authentication services, the price can really start to ramp. So not only choosing the right one up front, but also being very clear about what the costs are going to be. You, know, you, need to, you need to look at this and say, we want to get to a million customers. How much is this going to cost us? Because the answer is probably quite a lot. So your, your book, covers uh, .NET as the tech stack for, for SaaS applications. You know, how well suited is .NET uh, for building this type of application? You know, is, there, is there positives and negatives to it? Yeah, of, of course. I mean, there's positives and negatives to, to any tech stack you, you care to choose, I suppose. Um, I, I would personally argue, I don't know, so I've been developing in .NET for 18 years, so I'm somewhat um, you know, biased towards it. But I would argue it's an excellent choice. And I, I've, I've, all, I've kind of wondered, you know, like the open source community doesn't use .NET, even though it's open source now and, and multi-platform, they will always go to a JavaScript or a TypeScript solution. But if you look at what you get from .NET or, or the Microsoft tech stack, you know, SQL Server is an extremely powerful relational database, battle-tested over decades. It works. Entity Framework, there's, there's pros and cons with Entity Framework. You know, it can be slow, um, but it's also very good you know it gets you it gets you your orm layer um very very quickly very well established way of doing it the api offerings from microsoft just now from web api are are also good i know there's you know people are talking about a number of other uh, tech stacks using the back end like rust for example which are faster but does do you need bleeding edge speed for uh, a lot of what's happening a web app i would argue maybe not and when we get onto the front end, I think the situation is a lot less clear because Microsoft have got history with front ends, right? I, I don't know if any of the rest of you were Silverlight experts for a while, but I did many years worth of Silverlight and then the rug was pulled out from under us on that one. So I think the argument for using Blazor on the front end is much less. So I included it in the book because the book was on .NET, Microsoft stack. Um, I hope that at some point it's a good choice as in that the Microsoft do start to support it because there is tremendous power in being able to use the same language across everything. If you're using .NET, essentially for your data interaction through Entity Framework, API, and on the front end, it's much easier to support. Yeah. I also, there's one other thing to say about Microsoft is they have been doing this for the long haul, you know, aside from the front, the front end. They've, you know, .NET has been around for years. It's got so much um, work behind it, so much support behind it, it's not going to go away in the next 20 years. So if it's not like a flash in the pan back end, you know, like for example, Ruby on Rails, that was big for a while, never really hear about that anymore, but .NET has outlasted that and then some. So from that point of view, I think you've got a lot of longevity with, uh, with .NET or the Microsoft stack rather, I should say. We're all dinosaurs here, so we've seen a couple of like front end or even desktop frameworks that were around super popular and then they died out. So, so we know what you're talking exactly. about. Exactly that. I, I don't quite trust them to support Blazor for the long term, but we'll see. I hope they do. I like it. 
But I think it's fairly safe to say that if you build something a web API, that'll be relatively well supported for the next decade. So some of the concerns and the questions I would have when I first would build something like this would be, you know, how to handle licensing and then mm-hmm. also security concerns because, you know, because it's going to be, you know, one application with lots of different, you know, uh, tenants inside of it. How do you handle that? And what's the best way to do that? Well, I don't know if, if you can say for sure there is a best way to, to do that. And the other problem with all things security is that the, the best practice changes all the time. It's, it's, a, it's a total moving target. Um, with, with multi-tenancy, there's a number of ways you can do this. I do have a chapter in the book covering multi-tenancy, um, but it really depends on how um, important is it to your customers that the data is, is definitely segregated. And so if we think about um, Gmail, for example, there's no way that, that every Gmail user has an individual uh, tenant where they have a, a unique uh, installation of the application they're using because you know Google are reading your emails anyway. So if you're using Gmail, you can't be all that security conscious. But for example, if you had a, if you had a, like a tax application like TurboTax, for myself who uses, who uses that, I don't pay extra for like my own instance of it. If I was an enormous corporation or a military contractor or or someone like that, I would be prepared to pay extra to have this to have a completely segregated tenant. So as with everything in this, you need to look at what you think your use case is going to be. Are you going to have any of these very high um, high security conscious customers? Is it all just going to be the general public who probably don't want to pay the enormous extra fee for it and uh, and decide you're going to cut it up that way? And the, the general ways you can cut it up is you can have a unique application instance per customer, which is the most expensive and the most secure because there's it's got a nice circle drawn around it with nobody else on it. The next sort of step up, which you don't see very often, is you can have a unique database schema per customer. So they would be using the same database server, but with completely segregated schemas in the database. I, I can't think of a good example for that, and I couldn't when I was writing the book either, because I just don't think that's really very commonly done. And the one that I'm sure we've probably all seen is like a shared schema where you've got a tenant ID column in the tables and that just says so when you're fetching the data for me you say where tenant id equals andy watt but then I, the, my data is in the same table as everybody else in the world which is a little bit easier to uh, to attack perhaps did that answer your question i'm not sure if i went off on a tangent there about multi-tenancy <laughs> no that was that was good you know that's my uh, my concern there is you know do i make an instance of each application you know to keep it as secure as possible or you know be, I guess it's always a trade-off between that security and performance, because uh, absolutely, you know, each one's its own instance. That's so going to be raising up costs, um, but be more secure, and it could be less performant. So I guess pick two out of the three type of issue. <laughs> what do you want? What do you want? If you've got customers with sufficiently deep pockets, you can pick all three. <laughs> but they need to have deep pockets. You yeah. mentioned a, a very good, uh, uh, very good thing. Whether we should create like separate schemas for each tenant or put everything in one table, I believe um, many programmers fell into this. Like, wow, separate schemas. This really sounds like a good idea. Uh, but there is big drawback to that, meaning that many databases do not let you create infinitely many schemas. So you just hit some. Mm-hmm unexpected limit and especially we hit it when your business starts to grow and it's kind of a little bit too late to reorganize everything so that's the pitfall we want to avoid absolutely and it's it's not it's not particularly well supported like for example an entity framework you can support uh, a, a unique database per per customer instance or the um the the tenant id in the, in the tables but they don't really offer support for a unique schema I think probably for the reasons that you said, because the database backend will at some point eventually start to complain about that. And then you've got a huge problem if you've based your entire application around that. A huge yeah, and very th- expensive problem. I think that's generally, uh, that applies to multiple libraries, multiple ORMs. Like while it's easy to, to change like the patterns how you name your tables, it's generally pretty hard to specify what schema you use. Sometimes you just define it on connection, so you can't change it like dynamically depending on the request you get. So it sounds easy, sounds nice, but in practice it's very hard to maintain. Absolutely. I, I would argue that the 
the unique schema in a shared database is the worst of both worlds. If you need the security, unique database and app stack. If you don't care so much and you just need to, to make it easy and cheap for people to use, uh, tenant IDs in the tables. There's very few use cases where I, I really can't think of a, a good use case where I'd recommend the, the middle ground. And what about monitoring? If we can switch gears for a little, if we have like one database, how do we do monitoring so we see which tenant it applies to? And if we have multiple databases, should we like put it all together when it comes to monitoring? Have one dashboard? Should we split them? How would you organize that? Yeah, well, I, again, you know, I feel like we're going to say this like a number of times. That's just a, it's a, it depends on the customers because you have to be careful. You know, if you're segregating your databases, but you've got a single monitoring point, then your monitoring becomes an attack vector to get access to all of the databases. And you have to be very careful about what you're putting into the logs. You know, if, you, if some information that you don't want shared winds up in the logs and they're all just stored in one, one uh, centralized location, then you've, you, there's no point in segregating your database. So, uh, yeah, unfortunately, the answer is it, it depends. But if you've gone to the bother of, of giving a, a customer a completely unique uh, app stack and database, I think that customer would probably be a bit uh, disappointed if you had a centralized logging solution that was logging to one place with all of the other customers. Are there ways to limit what one customer can do? You know, set their threshold of you can't use any more resources, a cap on it so that, you know, one customer can't take down you know, a thousand other customers' performance because you're running on the same same system? Yeah, so that's called the noisy neighbor problem, which is a, a well-known sort of issue with with all of these things where you're essentially sharing resources. And, you know, even if you are talking about like a, a unique app stack for a customer, if that's running on the same cloud platform and there's some limitation on bandwidth or whichever on the cloud platform, then they can easily start to leak across. So yeah, you can look at all sorts of ways of doing that, uh, just throt throttling the requests, you know, for, for example, is a, is a fairly basic one, or, or throttling the bandwidth when they get over a, a certain amount of bandwidth. But that's certainly something you absolutely have to think about when you're taking on customers. And it's, it's going to work that, you know, there'll be an 80-20 rule where 80, you know, where 20% of your customers will use up 80% of your resources. And there's, there's going to be some argument where either certain customers are costing you money to have and also annoying all of your other customers by consuming all of the shared resources. So there's there's a number of, you know, you can you can put that in at just about any level you want. But um, I believe that my DevOps is not the hottest, but I believe that with uh, Azure and AWS and all of these platforms, you can set up at that level, which would be a good place to put it because then you're sort of preventing them getting into your application at all if they're, uh, if they're over the usage limits. And, you can and see how this. about, uh, uh, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say like a very good example currently that I'm sure everyone's uh, probably been reading about is ChatGPT. You know, they limited their uh, GPT-4 to 25 uh, requests per three hours, I believe recently, presumably to prevent the noisy neighbor problem. Right, right, right. And uh, how about backend design? Is there certain design you know, techniques that work better? Is it best to go like microsurface architecture or some other architecture for, for doing this? Yeah, so microservice is a good buzzword just now, and I think everyone's sort of looking into it. My impression with microservices is it's extremely powerful. It can get you out of a lot of problems that you will encounter as your, um, as your SaaS application grows, but it also gives you a tremendous overhead in terms of development, especially at the start. So if you're a startup, for example, and you don't have your customers yet, and you maybe don't have your product market fit yet, do you want to spend the extra engineering time building microservices into it? I'm not so sure. It depends. You know, it depends what your resources are, of course. But uh, so I, th I think that microservices is a very powerful and very important part of the puzzle here. But it needs to be used carefully because there is a very steep learning curve for it and quite a lot of overhead in term uh, across the board. You know, hosting gets more complicated, maintenance gets more complicated, debugging and testing gets more complicated. And this is for the life cycle of your project. My take on it is. You should work with a single service until it's too big to justify being a single service and then break it down rather than trying to start off with a multi, uh, uh, microservice architecture because when you cut the service without at the start, you don't really know where your boundaries are. But when you build it and one part of it outgrows it, you know precisely where your boundaries are so you can cut that piece out of it. But there are good arguments they offer to do the opposite of what I just said as well. Are there any parts in like C-Sharp and Docker that your book focuses on that 
that make the building SaaS applications like much easier and remarkable things that .NET provides to, to make your life better. Uh, um, entity framework, I think. It's a fantastic ORM. You know, once you, once you get the hang of entity framework, you can basically, I hesitate to say this because I'm sure that people will disagree, but you can somewhat stop thinking about your database to a certain extent. As long as you know, as long as you know what you're doing before you start not thinking about it, and as long as you set it up, okay, I think that's a fantastic tool. Especially if we're talking about a startup, maybe trying to get a software as a service thing off the ground as quickly as they can. That's that's fantastic. If you want a, a counterpoint as well, like maybe something that they don't do so well, it's authentication and authorization, and I believe that's being improved with uh, .NET version eight. But the authentication stack has been extremely difficult to work with with uh with .NET. assuming that is you want to build your own I, I don't mean completely roll your own you know if you if you're shying away from using one of the third party options like uh auth zero for example yeah generally authentication is always tricky so you probably don't want to roll your own solutions in that <laughs> no yeah i, I recently went through some headaches with with authentication because i had to switch a .NET web forms application over from using form-based authentication to Okta. And yeah, that was kind of a pain. So yeah. If you want to if you want to use the identity server part of .NET, which isn't really rolling your own authentication as such, but it's taking a bit more control over it, it's it's painful. It's extremely painful. They have acknowledged that and they do say they're going to fix it with uh, with version eight. So we'll we'll see. And what about testing that? We mentioned a couple of different areas here, right? Multi-tenancy, databases, hosting, authentication. How do we actually make sure that what we developed works well? Yeah, with great difficulty is the answer to that question. Uh, with, uh, <laughs> with, with SaaS apps, testing is, is difficult across the board. You know, the unit testing as ever is relatively easy because you, can, you, just, test, you just test the units and the, the unit testing frameworks for any technology you're going to use is, is reasonably well established as well, I think. But when it comes to integration testing and end-to-end -end testing and really making sure the thing actually works, then it's, it's much more complicated. I think you're basically looking at a Docker solution, especially if you have gone with microservices, because then, you know, you could have, if you've got five microservices, each with their own database, potentially with different database platforms, then you need to be thinking about um, how you're going to spin them all up for ETE testing. So I th with, with testing, it's very, very important not to shy away from it with a SaaS app. I think it's true of any app, but it's even more true. And because it's so difficult, I think it's easier to, to just not do it. But you really do need to think about it. And the thing you need to think about is end-to-end -end testing. How am I spinning everything up and doing the, the user interactions and following it through and making sure that everything works? So you mentioned uh, Docker, basically. And the, the other approach we could take is basically creating infrastructure from scratch using infrastructure as code in, in the cloud yeah. provider we have. Do you think any of these approaches like better than the other? And there is like significantly, I don't know, better outcome or maybe lower maintenance in any of these? So I, I'm a big fan of the, the developer environment being on a developer's laptop. So I, I strongly prefer if I, can t if I can have the whole application up and running on my laptop and I can run all of the tests without having to go to a cloud service. You know, not that it ever happens, but the example I always give is it's good to be able to develop on a flight, on a transatlantic flight with no Wi-Fi if you want to, for example. Uh, and I think that like any sort of break in the developer's workflow, so if they have to stop and spin up these things in the cloud, and if this takes a, a, a bit of time and they've got to wait in a queue for it, that can that can break your workflow. Whereas if you've just got a terminal window open and the tests are spinning through and you can see when they go red and you can see when they go green, I think that's a much more pleasant environment to work in. So I would say that is, is good in terms of having it all locally in a, in, a, in a Docker setup. But of course, if we're talking about um, SaaS here, you can talk about some enormous applications. Like I can't imagine that anyone can run Gmail on their own laptop, you would imagine the back-end infrastructure behind that is enormous. So in that case, you'd have to start moving on to some something like uh, infrastructure, yeah, for sure. So I would say that I, I would argue that you're always better off running on the developer's machine if you can. So if your SaaS application is small enough that that's feasible, you should attempt to do so. But you have to be prepared for it growing too big for that. You need to have a strategy for moving on to a cloud solution uh, when the time comes. 
Yeah, I couldn't agree more with ability to run stuff, especially when you are flying. Uh, one thing, though, <laughs> I never learned how to do properly with such an approach, which I'm a big fan of, as you said as well, uh, is how do I do load testing with running stuff locally? Yeah, that's challenging. That's one of those things that you maybe uh, just will not be able to. You know, there's, there's certain instances where you just have to move it onto the, uh, onto the server. You can say the same about uh, pen testing. You're going to have to have some infrastructure for that. There's no, there's no way around that. It has to be as close to your production environment as possible, if not your actual production environment. What do you think some of the biggest mistakes people make when they're you know, developing a, a SaaS application? That's a, that is an excellent question. So um, choice of database technology, very important, very difficult to change. I, I think that's one that you have to get right. You know, you can see the database is the foundation of your application. And if you need to change it, it's, it's, it's tricky to do that. And I think the other, the other really big one, which we have touched on already, is not thinking about the cloud costs as you start to scale, because that, that can put you out of business, you know, and like often these costs, they're not really linear, you know, it's like as a small company, you get certain discounts or free access, you know, a certain amount free, and then suddenly you've got like a big step change when you go over X number of customers. So not being, not taking the appropriate care when you're choosing your cloud provider at the start could literally sink your company or sink your project. But when you mentioned now the costs, Microsoft was well known for providing BizSpark or other programs for startups. Are there any programs like that nowadays that we might be using? Ooh, you mean... Um, for know, startups, I mean, I'm starting a new company doing SaaS. Does Microsoft give me, you know, free perks and, and other stuff? Um. They do. I'm not 100% sure what those perks are like just now. Um, I'm, not, as a, I'm not too deep into, into that side of things. I, I believe there's startup discounts that you can get from Microsoft that will see you through the first year, for example, with a certain number of credits that you can use. But it's, it's worth being aware that, that that doesn't last forever. You're going to have to pay the bill at some point, you know. Yeah, and as you mentioned, especially that you run into your business, this those increasing costs can actually put you out of that. So how do how do we prevent that? How what do we do to make sure that we are not surprised when things you know go good, remarkably <laughs> good, that we are put out of the business? <laughs> yeah, well, so you know, it's it's easy for us technical people to just talk about code and databases and whatnot all the time, but you just have to be aware of the business environment that you're operating in. So you need to know roughly speaking what your customers are prepared to pay for it. You need to know what it costs. You, so you need to analyze your customers. And this is just from the monitoring and the logging tools. You, know, you need to know how much your average bandwidth is per customer, for example, database requests, all, all of these things. And then you have to be aware of what that's going to cost. So a little bit of a look ahead. You know, If we get a million customers, the server costs go up to this. There'll be some economies of scale. There may be some step changes. So, And that is important for, uh, for the, the more technically minded among us. But it's also a question for the, the business people in the in the presumed startup from our point of view as as techies and coders we can write efficient code uh you know make sure that it's not being wasteful of bandwidth or wasteful of, of processing time or database uh um database capacity Andy, i've got a question on uh on user interface design is there anything uh different about designing a user interface for a SaaS uh, application uh, compared to, I suppose, any other user interface? Are there any special considerations? Um, I don't think so. I think I think a good a good user experience is just across the board. You know, whether it's a, a mobile app, a, a web app, or something which has been delivered as a as a SaaS app, um, you you definitely need to pay a lot of attention to that. I think it's very important because your customers can just stop their monthly payments if the user experience is not sufficiently polished. So I, th I think it's maybe true to say that you have to pay a little bit extra attention to make that a good experience for your users. So is so it, what about the considerations for, I guess, I guess in terms of like feedback loop, are there issues with connectivity or, or performance, database performance, things like that? you need to be mindful of and pay more attention to in terms of and maybe even develop strategies for right it might take this might take a long time or this connection may not be available 
Are, are there thoughts along those lines that impact the UI or the user experience, user interface, or is that is that not really a, an issue? Um, I think that is an issue. So because we're generally always talking about web apps as well, so it's useful. Uh, you know, if, if there's no internet connection, you generally can't use a web app. So, for example, using something like a progressive web app might get you away from some problems with that. If if you did have a server go down, rather than just showing a 404, you know, there's still certain parts of the application that could work. Because if, if people don't like your your UI, you know, your UI is your product with a SaaS app. It's the only thing you're selling, really. And if people don't like it, they will just hit the cancel button. And that's it. You've lost the customer. And, and you know, your customer acquisition could be very difficult. Um, so I, I would say that certainly trying to make sure that it's that the UI mean, continues to be as responsive as possible, no matter what horrible things are happening on the back end, is, is more important because it's directly tied to your revenue. Does it also mean that when we go mobile, do we need to like stick to the platform or integrate with the platform 100%? And because of that, we wouldn't be able to use cross-platform frameworks or there is no relationship like that. Um, you mean for the, so for the front end, like a cross-platform, you know, you can use something like, for example, React Native that will work for Android or iOS. So you can still do it. There's always a compromise if you're using one of those. Uh, you never get quite the power of the, the full one. So again, it depends on on what you think is, you know, on how you think your users are going to use the, the application, whether you need to just spend the time to develop two apps. Cross-platform's got a checkered history. And Blazor yeah, has some of that in there too, right? You can build with Blazor and use that cross-platform. Yeah, it's, it's, it's well, it's coming on. I mean, the, this, the, the UI story from Microsoft is, as ever, a little bit murky just now because they've got Maui as well, which is an attempt at cross-platform. That's meant to be the successor to Xamarin Forms. And then they've got Blazor kind of on the sidelines as well with Blazor Server and Blazor Wasm. So, yeah, it's it's true. I don't think they've got a very consistent story yet about how they would want to approach that. And I believe you could use um, Blazor to do something which may work on a, on a mobile app, but it's essentially a web platform for now. And I know they've got ambitions to integrate it with Maui. But I don't, I don't believe that's ready for... Uh, for the prime time yet. I think that's still being discussed how they're going to do that. Andy, I've got one, maybe another completely out of bounds question, but one of, the thing. things that, well, one of the things that strikes me as, as, as potentially super interesting about a, a SaaS application is the ability for collaborative creation, right? Where the collaborator, yeah. where multiple people might be working on a single document, whatever that document is. Uh, and even maybe not only people, but maybe also artificial intelligent agents might be working in that space. Um, I guess my question is, does is that something that you have any perspective on? Is that something that fits well into this space? Is there Are there special considerations for implementing something along those lines? Um, so yeah, that, that is something which is, is increasingly common. I think, I mean, Miro is a very good example of that, you know, like the shared whiteboarding application where everyone can just, you can collaborate very, very cleanly on that. And that it does sit very, very well with, with software as a service. You could technically do that. You know, you could all go and buy, um, DVDs with software on it and install it, and we could still link up through the internet. And so it doesn't require a software as a service. But if you think about multiple people logged into the same um, version of the same application and whatnot, it just it makes perfect sense to do it that way. So I think it's a very good use use case for it. There there are security considerations because if you're allowing people to collaborate on essentially the same asset or or however you like to call it on the back end, you need to make sure that people aren't seeing things they shouldn't be or getting access to other people's accounts. But that's true of true of all parts of it. So I think I think it's a it's a very very good use case for uh, for a software as a service application. And uh, the .NET Tic Tac has a uh, you know great tools for that you know with SignalR to help with that. So I I've done that as well as you know let multiple people edit a document and see each other's changes and things like that. So it does work well with SignalR. Yes, is that's a good point. Actually, that's one that I should have maybe mentioned when you asked about things that .NET does particularly well for it. That is actually an excellent example. SignalR is a very, very powerful tool for for exactly that. Okay, so any other questions, or Andy, is there anything we haven't covered that we should talk about for SaaS applications? 
Oh, I think I think we've had a good uh, a good go through it. And there's there's one other thing that is maybe worth mentioning, which is related to DevOps, which is CI/CD pipelines. I think that's uh, that's that's just essential. I mean, you, you you need that for any web application these days. But if you're going to do software as a service and do it well, you need to have a very very clean release pipeline that ensures that there's no interruption to service. Because as we said with the with the, the UX, for example, any downtime just costs you users. It just hits your bottom line directly. So you really need to think about that up front. You need to make sure that you've always got that um, that pipeline working. The other sort of big reason for that, and this is one which I think is is applicable to all projects, is if you can't software that's developed but it's sitting in a Git repo that's not adding any value to any of your customers, you've paid for that as a company. You've paid for the development, and it's just sitting there doing nothing for six months or a year until you get your yearly release out, and that that is enough time for your competitors who are using CI/CD to just completely destroy you in the in the SaaS market. So you need to be able to, in the shortest practical time possible, get the value that a developer's added by updating the product straight into the hands of the customer. And the only way of doing that in a manageable way that I'm aware of is uh, is continuous integration and uh, continuous deployment pipelines. Yeah, and something that uh, you know that just made me think about is you know do you recommend using like deployment slots? So when you are rolling out an update, you don't update everybody simultaneously, just to make sure that there's nothing that wasn't caught or or doing A-B testing, things like that. Yeah, all, I mean, all good ideas. I, again, it depends on how many customers you've got. If you've got a couple of hundred, you can probably just push it out to everyone and get the feedback. If you've got a couple of million, almost certainly not. You know, building those things takes time. And so as you're growing your application and, and adding customers, you'll want to start thinking about these things. Let's face it, you'll probably start thinking about them when you release an update that breaks everyone and you might decide you only want to break 10% of people the next time. But yeah, all of these things are great uh, are great techniques to make sure that this is a smooth process because that, that's the most important thing is that it's a smooth process. It doesn't doesn't cost you money. I think it's it's true like SaaS development takes the developers much closer to the to the business, to like the money flows because the, the actions that you take can very directly affect that. Andy, do you see design patterns emerging in this space? Mm, um, how do you mean design? Like, on what level are we talking? Well, that, you know, in my earlier question, you know, I, I, this idea of collaborative work, right? Creating a SaaS application that, that supports collaboration. Well, as I consider that, I think there must be best practices uh, and things to watch out for that similarly impact every single collaboration piece of software that's that's written out there. For example, and from a UI perspective, it's a good idea to show uh, a cursor showing where other people are viewing the, in the document, where other people's attention is or changes are, for example, and a named cursor. That's an yeah. example of something that I might consider a design pattern emerging from that particular focus. And I was just wondering, you know, like in, in some of, I guess I could call it maybe not design patterns, but maybe more like best practices that are emerging as you look at this. Maybe that's a better version of the question. Uh, yeah, okay. Um, so I think that the, that is very domain specific. I'm sure there are best practices that are emerging for collaboration tools, for example. Um, I, I've never built a collaboration tool, so I can't really speak to that um, with, much, uh, with much technical knowledge. I, I mean, if you look at if you look at the, the sort of the mega trends with this, the, the big things that are coming out are are like cloud hosting. It's really a focus on DevOps, for example. So you could argue that the whole DevOps movement is a is a is a design pattern, if you can call it such, that's that's coming because of the need to support these types of of applications. Uh, you you could certainly argue that like REST is a design pattern that's uh, that's coming out for uh, for this. If you want to, if you start focusing in a little bit, you know, CQRS is something that's very useful. If you've got a lot of requests um, and you want to segregate them into reads and essentially reads and writes, that can get you out of trouble. If you're, if you've got infinitely more reads than writes, if you can, uh, if you can segregate them. Um, but I don't know, I don't know what order. I don't know, I don't, I don't know what came first. You know, the chicken or the egg in this one? Like, are these design patterns? allowing us to build these apps or are these apps requiring these design patterns or is it in a kind of a, a cycle? I, I'm not too sure on that one. 
The, the other big design design pattern, again, and maybe I'm a bit too zoomed out here, is the is like the authentication piece, because we're doing that in a very specific way now, with like uh, JWT and and OAuth two and whatnot, and that's designed to facilitate SaaS applications essentially, you know, secure login and secure access to to backend services. I wasn't sure if we're talking like gang of four patterns or <laughs> what, what level we're, we're at with that. With that. Yeah, I was I, I'm, I was a little bit in that space. I was a little bit there, but the gang of four patterns are essentially coming from, you know, noticing what we're doing and building the software. Yeah. Now we seem to be doing some similar things and maybe making similar mistakes again and again, and there might be a way out, right? And so, you know, these kinds of things can show up all over the place. So yeah, total yeah. wide open space. But yes, inspired certainly by the initial work that they did. The I'm sure you remember the, the the very first sort of shared collaboration platform was Google Wave. I don't know if everyone remembers that. It, it came and went rather quickly. Yeah. And and that kind of was the start of it. And then after that, they, they, they canceled Google Wave and integrated the technology into Google Docs and Google Sheets. So I assume that there are, they, they must have been learning constantly over the last uh, maybe 10 years or so. But sadly, I don't work for Google, so you'll need to go and uh, find one of them and see how they've done it. <laughs> don't work for Google yet. <laughs> yet, yet, yeah. Or Microsoft, yeah. Well, yeah, maybe I should go for them. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think I'm going to move us into picks then. So, uh, Mark, you want to go first? What's your pick for this week? You know, I have failed you, listeners. Uh, I have not, there's nothing that I've seen or experienced really that's exceeded my threshold for describing it to you as recommending it to you. Um, I, I've seen Oppenheimer. I thought it was okay. Uh, I, I saw Guardians of the Galaxy 3 came out on video. It looked, there was some visual technical stuff that was awesome in it. But story-wise, it, it felt to me short of the stuff I normally associate with Guardians of the Galaxy. In other words, funny, you know, and quirky, super quirky, that sort of thing. How about places uh, to travel to, Mark? Well, yeah, I don't know. I'll, I'll say it's, uh, you know, I'm in Valencia, Spain, Costa Rica, actually. I'll say Costa Rica then. I lived in Costa Rica for four years, five years. Uh, I, I generally really loved it. Um, the weather was the same every day. No seasons there because you're so close to the equator. Uh, the, you can find almost completely deserted beaches, not too far from where you are, uh, which is also excellent. Uh, and, uh, generally everybody there's nice and relaxed. Don't drive there. If you can avoid, avoid driving, avoid driving in Costa Rica for, uh, reasons that are maybe too long to explain on the show, but just don't do it. Don't drive if you can. And you might need, okay? How's that? You might, you might need power generators. Is that what I've heard? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I did my the live streaming from Costa Rica, I had power. I had power, multiple power generators through the house. I had one on my uh, my router. I had one for my equipment. Another one for my lights. Uh, so generally, if we lost power, everything I still had like at least ten minutes. I didn't have generators. I had uh, UPSs, uninterruptible power supplies. Ah. So my the cool thing was is the uninterruptible power supply on the router would be beautiful because you could lose power in Costa Rica for like hours, but that UPS powering only the router, it would go for hours and you could have internet on your phone, right? In a complete power blah blackout where everybody, because the, 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 the internet doesn't go out. It's just the power, right? You just have to keep your router up. That's all you had to do. So maybe that's my pick. It's a UPS for your router. That's what it is, kids. Okay. All right, Adam, what's your pick? So my pick for this week is NVIDIA. It's a platform that lets you build uh, or prepare videos uh, based on templates. So if you've ever seen lovely videos for like your, your webinars, video logs, or whatever other stuff with nice intro and the beautiful outro, the people generally don't do them by hand. I mean, you go, you take a nice, uh, nice template, you fill it with your data and you're off you go. So generally in video can help you with that. All right, cool. Andy, what do you have for a pick? 
Sure. So I'm I'm going quite topical then. It's something that I think would be very helpful if you're doing a software as a service application. So there's a, a project called Test Containers, which is open source and it gives you like throwaway instances of databases, message brokers, web browsers, uh, and anything essentially that you can run in a container. Um, so it takes a lot of the pain out of testing. It can prevent you doing a lot of complex mocking, for example, if you're trying to mock the returns from a from a from a web API, as as you might very well be. And it leans on Docker, which is one of my favorite topics to to discuss. So I think that's a, that's a good one if you're if you're approaching, as we've said in this on this episode, a very complicated topic, which is testing for software as a service test containers. All right, cool. And uh, and also the name of your book uh, that we've been talking about is called uh, Building Modern Software as a Service. Applications with C Sharp and .NET. So yes, available on Amazon now. Yep, I would say all good bookstores, but just yeah. Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> cool. All right, so my pick this week is uh, a show that I found on Max, uh, formerly HBO Max, called Warrior. So it's uh, actually a pretty nice series. It's it's uh, kind of a a martial arts uh, series type thing, a lot of Bruce Lee type stuff in it, but it's based in late 1800 San Francisco. So there's, you know, competing Chinese gangs, things like that. But then also we have the town of San Francisco with the police and things like that. So um, what I've really found interesting about this show is they have very good writers. They have good storylines, things like that. But I will warn you, there is lots of gore in it. So when somebody dies with a sword, you see them, you know, the damage the sword does. And and they don't hold back on the gore and, and, and some of the, the nudity in the show as well. But so, but other than that, it's got good action, good stories, uh, good plots, things like that. It's uh, They're now releasing series three. Is that right? Uh, yeah, season three is out right now. So I'm in the middle of, of season two that I've been watching and uh, kind of binge watching one or two episodes tonight. So if you like martial arts and people dying by swords and axes and stuff, <laughs> check out Warrior on Max. That's awesome. Okay. <laughs> if you like to see people dying, <laughs> it's the adventures of .NET, kids. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, do not let young kids watch this show. No, do not watch it. I'm in the room. No. Okay. Thanks, Andy. Uh, our listeners, if they want to get in touch with uh, you, how should they get in touch? So it's AndyWatt83 across pretty much all the socials. So LinkedIn and Twitter is probably your best bet. Okay. And if they want to catch in touch with the show, then they can find me. I am on X slash Twitter and uh, also threads. Uh, I am at .NET Superhero. So let me know. Uh, maybe some things you want to have uh, us cover on the show or guests you want to have us bring on. Uh, just let me know. We'll do it. Thanks, everybody. We'll catch you on the next episode of Adventures in .NET. <laughs>